Welcome to AMI Sites, a podcast that offers you access to thought leaders who can help you expand your entrepreneurial toolbox. Learn from seasoned entrepreneurs who have already walked in your shoes and can help you with your day-to-day business decisions. With your host, Ami Kassar. Ami is the founder and CEO of Multifunding, an advisory company that helps you grow and stay in control of your business. Hello and welcome. My name is Ami Kassar, founder and CEO of Multifunding. Since 2010, Multifunding has helped businesses achieve their biggest growth goals through creative and personalized funding solutions working with hundreds of lenders across the nation. Joining us today is Greg Crabtree. Greg is a speaker, author, entrepreneur, and financial expert. His firm, Crabtree Rodenberger, is a CPA firm dedicating to helping entrepreneurs build the economic engines of their businesses. Our main topic today will focus on how Greg helps companies manage their books and what's different about his approach. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Ami. I appreciate you having me on. What's going on, buddy? How's life? Well, pretty good. Uh, one thing in the bio I, I did recognize, so about a year ago, we merged with one of the top 20 accounting firms in the U.S., uh, Carr, Riggs, and Ingram. So now we're part of a much larger organization that spans from offices from North Carolina to New Mexico, pretty much all through the southern region. But, uh, but it's, been, uh, it's been interesting to, uh, to be part of a bigger organization and certainly share some work and uh, get some resources that when we had our own our own practice, you know, it was one of those things that sometimes you had to you had to miss out on opportunities. So that's uh, it's been a great pleasure to be a part of. They've been a great group to join in with. So, Greg, we're recording this now, and it seems like the world is opening up, and yeah. people are their vaccines, and it's sort of like business feels like it's getting back to normal. Is it normal? Yeah, it's far from normal because we're dealing with a lot of environmental things. So one of the unique things in our practice, so I, you know, back in 2011, I wrote my first book, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits. And that was kind of my ode to, you know, my study of my entrepreneurial clients and, and kind of trying to make accounting friendly for the entrepreneurs. And, um, and then I've since followed that up with Simple Numbers 2.0 this, this past year. And, and so it's created a consulting practice for us. It's kind of unique in that even though my office uh, is located in Huntsville, Alabama, our clients are all over the U.S., Canada, Australia, uh, some in Southeast Asia. And, and so we get a really broad perspective of privately held business. That's really our passion in this. And one of the neat things that we've been able to do is because our practice isn't geographic or industry specific, um, you know, both for the second book and just for our own analytical purposes, we've been tracking this index of companies. So we've got about, we've got a hundred companies that we kind of monitor and it's about a billion dollars of revenue. And, and from what we found is it's a pretty fascinating, you know, output from that because, you know, what we found from tracking this privately held business data is it really doesn't exist anywhere in the marketplace. I mean, the government knows little to nothing about privately held businesses. And, you know, and, and so you start to see some trends and things that really kind of shock you. Like, for example, you know, we, this model goes back to 2013 was my base year that I started doing research for the second book. And we saw double digit annual growth in 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. We saw single digit growth in 19. This first, first year dropped below 10%. It got back, went to about 8% going into COVID. We just finished the update looking at the pre-COVID 12 months ended March to the COVID year ended March of 21. And it was actually up 9%. 
Now, you know, as much as we, we live around it and we say, you know, all this chaos and yeah, there, there were absolutely businesses, some businesses faced significant disruption, but there was a lot of businesses that didn't. Some of them had their best year ever. And, and so now I would tell you one thing I don't know from looking at this data, I can just tell you revenue growth year over year and other things, but I can't tell you output. And so one thing I would say is my sense is a good bit of that 9% increase was probably flat on output and it was mostly price increases. I mean, we, we've had tons of conversations with clients about maintaining their pricing, looking for opportunities to obviously, you know, in a disruptive environment, people kind of lose their baseline in terms of what they think a market price is. And so we've seen the consuming public far more open and amenable to price adjustments in the last 12 months as ever in the lifetime, you know, from that. The fascinating thing is, is not including PPP impact, this same group of companies also went from an 8% profit, operating profit, to over 10%. They actually went up 2% profitability with 9% growth. Which is just stunning. And when you look at the, you know, and this is kind of one of those things that I, I, I would consider myself kind of an amateur behavioral economist rather than accountant, because I always kind of look at how do humans respond to this information and change their behavior about things. And, and what we saw was is companies that were actually good companies during when COVID hit back in April and May during the, the worst part of the lockdown is those companies, even though they were doing okay, they trimmed unnecessary costs. They trimmed discretionary costs. They said, hmm, nobody's sticking a gun to my head making me spend this money. I think I'm going to turn it off until I find that I have to turn it back on. They trimmed the bottom. We, we saw direct labor essentially drop about 10% during that first quarter of the COVID impact. And so it kind of goes back to Jack Welch's comment years ago is that, you know, everybody's got the bottom 10% of their labor that they probably could do without. Well, that's pretty much what everybody did. Management labor was trimmed about 5%, so not, not as severely, because most people kind of consider management labor is harder to replace. You're going to stay in there longer, you know, with that group. And that's pretty much client to client, what we saw. But, you know, really, I mean, most everybody got through it unless you were in a directly impacted by a lockdown restrictive activity. Rest, you know, so a restaurant client struggled because of limited availability. Our retail clients had periods of, of struggle, but then they recovered. And, and that was kind of pent up demand that still stayed around. You know, restaurant demand is kind of one of those things. If you don't eat today, that's a meal that's gone forever, you know, in, in that process. We saw some people attempt to take advantage of, you know, COVID disruptions and, you know, high demand items get involved in some of the personal protective equipment and some of those things. And, and some of them had some measured success, but ended up losing a good bit of it on the back end as those supplies got glutted and, and they couldn't drop the, the, the goods as fast as, as they, they ramped up. And so you see a lot of this disruption. And, and now I think that what's interesting is I think the next six months is going to be everybody finding what a new normal is. And, and I will tell you a couple of things that, from the data we see is what I think the new normal is going to be. Number one is a certain portion of your staff will forever remain virtual. If that person was in the office, went home, I, I, the, either they're going to be part-time virtual or all-time virtual. But my sense is, is we'll settle out into a 20 to 30% footprint reduction as leases renew 
in office space. And, and so, you know, for everyone that abandons it completely, there's another one that will trim it just a little bit. You know, but there, there's going to be an adjustment in office space utilization. Uh, I think the next thing you're going to see is, you know, kind of a readjustment of pricing as people kind of find out, you know, where, where does, as the supply chain, we're probably six months away from most of the things I read on logistics of, you're probably six months or more away of the supply chain truly settling down in production, you know, getting back to normal. Um, but I think then you'll settle into a true competitive pricing. Right now, pricing is more based on who can do it and when can you do it, not necessarily the price of what it is. Um, and I think that will come back to us, you know, here in a bit. And then the, the last greatest challenge is that we are in for a massive challenge when it comes to labor. Um, you know, if you're dealing with the $15 an hour wage class, as I refer to it, good luck, because it's even as, as the supplemental benefits are starting to, to go off in many of the states, I think you're still going to struggle to find get that group of people to work for you and be effective. And then the skilled labor market is just woefully understaffed. Um, I mean, the open positions that I hear from my clients all across the board is just struggling, struggling, and a lot of poaching going on. So we're in for a really, really interesting run. And as, as you start to change prices for what you have to pay for that labor, then obviously that's going to create the residual effect of you got to then change your pricing to keep up with it to maintain your margins. And so I think if if we if you're not a company that does quarterly hard look at your your finances and then quarterly at a minimum reforecasting the future, you're going to get behind the curve really fast if you're not careful. So let me ask you a question, Greg, about you know the the, the labor markets. Is it time for people just to have to pay more, and that's the market? No, I mean the the problem is is you can you can pay more, but there is a finite level of what the market is willing to allow you to recovery or recovering that cost. So it's it's of the person who is available. Here's the bad part from an economic standpoint: you have to pay them so much that you won't be profitable. So you'd be running a business that is my worst nightmare of a business that's basically five percent or less in profitability, probably a, a very small return on investment you know, at best, but not, not a thriving business. The other challenge would be, okay, if I can't pay what the, the premium rate is that that talent wants, then I've got to be the ones to take the next rung down, find a way to kind of buffer their lack, their, their inability of certain skills that they need, but I can get some work out of them as they develop and grow them up. And, and, and I think to a certain degree, you're going to see significant service failure of, you know, anything of, of, of I, I think we're going to have to become a little more probably aware that you, you got somebody who's, who's making a pretty good wage and not really that good at what they're doing. And I, that's scary. I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that in, in the years that I've been doing business. There's times that we've kind of gotten on the edge of it. But, but I think this thing is running so fast at the moment that um, you're going to see the people who get desperate and overpay, then this is going to drive them to not be profitable. And of the people who are willing to develop, can you even find that developable talent? 
and then how good are you at quickly developing those people and moving them along to then just have a short arc of them getting hired away by the next top top bidder. I mean, we, we have, you know, we have the professional sports world and business is what we have. I mean, we're the Oakland A's of, of Moneyball of where, you know, you got to get the people with good on-base percentages, but they're not the big stars, but I can afford them only to lose them in free agency eventually. Yeah, that's interesting. Great. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your approach to accounting and how it's different? Yeah, so <laughs> my apologies to everybody in terms of if you're a business owner, the pain that my chosen profession of accounting inflicts upon you. Because unfortunately, the rules that the accountants and that live with to support the banking and the financial community, it's not very effective in terms of how you run a successful business, to be quite honest. And so, uh, you know, a lot of my frustration has been, okay, of the business owners that I've been fortunate enough to work with that were successful, I try to get in their head and figure out what is it that they're looking at? What matters to them? And to me, it really breaks into, we call it simple numbers for a reason, because if, if you really understand the way an entrepreneur intuitively looks at data, there's an engine piece of the business, and then there's this kind of fixed chassis of the business. And there's businesses that have strong engines and a weak chassis. And so the engine will, will dry, run you into the ditch because you got too much horsepower for what it can pull. And more times than not, you got the other direction. You got a big, heavy chassis with too small of an engine to pull it down the road because you, you just overbuilt. And, and so what we did is we came up with a simplified approach of first the P&L structure of the business those three components of the engine is revenue, cost of goods sold, and direct labor to get to what we call contribution margin. So that is, that's where we spend 80, 90% of the time talking to our clients is how do we get that engine to push out more because we don't load it with a lot of unnecessary allocations of, of overhead and, and those things. I want a good clean number that tells me what did we produce? What is the output of our business engine? And then what we find is, is when you take that chassis, which is facilities, marketing, management, labor, payroll taxes and benefits and other OPEX, kind of a catch-all bucket of everything else, that number doesn't really change a lot. It changes only by decisions of, of the owners of the business. And so once you, you really isolate that, what you start to find is as much as people want to treat that as a variable cost, it's mostly fixed, kind of. It will drift upwards as you grow. It won't drift downwards very fast without chopping it and, and inflicting pain and suffering. And, and, and so it gives people a, a clearer understanding of what do you have to produce to. And so what we want is to help clients really have much more usable data. That, I mean, I, we, we created our practice and flipped it around and said, instead of accountants doing consulting when you weren't busy doing taxes and financial statements, let's actually do consulting first. Let me help you run a more profitable business that has profit and cash flow. And then, oh, by the way, if you need some of this other, you know, traditional accounting stuff with taxes, financial statements, or bookkeeping support, we can do that too. But you've got to have a picture of what you're aiming at. And, and why do you need to know this? And it's got to sometimes break the rules of general accepted accounting principles because I need data in a practical way. Uh, some of the most successful clients were in great businesses, totally violating the rules of GAAP, you know, by, you know, using cash, a blend of cash basis and billing methodologies to record revenue and not worried about deferred revenue or those kind of things. I mean, they ultimately had to, you know, conceive of it, but, but really it's kind of one of those things that, 
you know, you, you find that people that really, you know, have that intuitive sense, you know, they, they compartmentalize this data. And so what we found was as businesses got bigger, we found ways to then take that business and slice it into its components. And so are you a multi-location business? Okay, well, let's evaluate each location, you know, but if you have projects, how do you compare projects against each other? How do you compare customers against each other? How do you compare lines of business against each other? And so once you create this segmentability and make it really lean and, and able to do in most any environment, you start to really create some awareness that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help that non-intuitive entrepreneur have the same gut because they've got data where the other person who just intuitively gets it, they had an advantage. And I'm trying to level that playing field so that you, you've got something you know the customer wants and needs. And you know how to deliver it, but you just can't, you don't intuitively see it in the data like somebody else does. And so we want to level the playing field. And we found that we can get pretty deep into the marketplace in terms of helping those people see it. But then at the end of the day, once you produce that profitability, how do you reinvest it and, and pay attention to the cash side of the ledger? And, and as I like to say, we want to find a way to get margin to move really fast through a business. Because one of the things that I, I've been fortunate enough to do is do my talks all around the world. And I can tell you that I've come to the conclusion that the only difference between a third world economy and a first world economy is the speed that margin flows through a transaction from beginning of vendor to the deliverer to the consumer. And if you can make a transaction cycle quick, you lower the entry burden of, of somebody getting into business and serving the public. And most third world economies have high barriers to entry because you have to carry receivables, you have to carry inventory of, of excessive amounts, and there's no trust in the system. And what we, you know, until you go outside of the U.S. and Canada, maybe Australia, you don't realize the, the, the benefits that we enjoy as first world economy because of, of the trust that's in the system to allow things to move quickly. And, and once you learn that side of the equation and you learn how to be profitable and, and effective in what you do, it's, it, it's really gratifying to see people build personal wealth and make an impact to the community, their, their family, uh, their employees, create jobs. I mean, it's, it's a very rewarding thing to see people turn these businesses into powerful engines, you know, to do good. Great. Maybe you can just, if there's some basic steps you would say to an entrepreneur who's running their business like we all know so many do i say with their shoelaces untied mm -hmm. not, not really knowing what's going on with their numbers not necessarily knowing the difference between their balance sheet or their income statement or what's next so if you can think of that typical business owner entrepreneur knows their trade and is passionate about their business and their numbers sure. are an afterthought what, yeah. what piece of advice would you give to them you know, the, the, you know, so I'll break it down in kind of into two groups. So the, the 5 million and under group and then the over 5 million. So the 5 million and under, that, that's really kind of where the first book was designed for is, is that particular group of businesses. Because I kind of wanted to shock them and, and say, listen, this is, a, this is a game about making money. And don't worry, you know, the, the under 5 million entrepreneur is overly concerned with taxes to the point that they destroy the wealth that they create by being afraid of paying taxes. And I got news for them. Rule number one is you never spend a dollar to save 40 cents in tax. I mean, that's a dumb idea. And, 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 and so I want to get them to, under, to embrace this idea that, yeah, there are some things you can do, but most of them, most of them are wasteful. And, 
you know, most of the people who truly become wealthy with a privately held business don't waste money. They, they pay their tax and they, they move on and you don't pay a dime more than you're supposed to pay. But you, you know, if you don't write a big check to the IRS, there's only two possibilities. You either cheated or you, you didn't really make any money. And, and a lot of people kind of kick the can down the road and push and defer and, and those things. And it's like, there's a great settle up day, you know, coming. So you got to be careful of that. But once you get that out of your head, say it's okay to make money and pay your taxes of whatever the current rate is, given the current, current time frame you're in. And once you're there, then the biggest thing that we get people to understand is this idea of a salary cap. So you're no different. So one of the beautiful things you can learn from the sports world, in the NFL, there's 32 teams. All 32 teams pay exactly the same amount of wages. So why is it that there's a handful of teams, and particularly I use the New England Patriots as my example, the Patriots make the playoffs and the Super Bowl a disproportionate number of times. When they're paying exactly the same amount of wages, it's the cleanest economic model that you could have. And I go, it's because of the effectiveness of they have a good game plan and they stick to the rules of the economics of managing the salary cap. For every dollar spent in wages, they get output. Wage is not a cost of something. It is, an, it is the key measure of output in the economy. There is nothing that happens in any business in the world that doesn't happen without labor of some amount, of some degree. And so what we've done is create basic output principles of saying the simplistic measure in the first book, I use a simple number called gross margin. So you take revenue minus your cost of goods sold. So that gross margin number is the true economic top line of your business. And so we see a ton of businesses that owe them $10 million in revenue. Well, yeah, but you got $9 million of cost of goods sold. So you really only had a million of revenue in reality. You know, so it's like, hey, you know, I'm not impressed by how much revenue you have. I'm impressed at how much gross margin you have. Take that gross margin per all labor. And there's an interesting number that it, the number that pops out for the overall number, taking all labor, regardless of its director management, is about 1.8 to a 2. I need about 1.8 to 2 times gross margin for every dollar of labor that I generate in the vast majority of business models. Now, there's a handful that's otherwise, but there's, there's some reasons for that. But the first thing is just understanding that output. Well, in the second book, we've since developed a much more elaborate version that you can really focus in in certain industries and break it down between what we call direct labor and management labor. And so we can look at, for a particular, like in the service industries, for example, you know, probably in the world of accounting, uh, marketing services, engineering services, if you look at gross margin per direct labor dollar, you're probably in a, like a 2.3 or something like that. And, and then there's a number for management labor, which is you take gross margin minus direct labor to get what we call contribution margin. That contribution margin is then the numerator that we hold management labor accountable to. And we see that number actually, regardless of the industry, pretty close to, you know, like a four to a five. Um, and so it's pretty, pretty common. But one of the things we always tell our classes is, listen, at the end of the day, before you start looking around, what we want you to understand is go back and look at your data and say, what was your best? Because what I'm trying to do is get you to accomplish what Roger Bannister did back in the 1950s. Is it was widely believed no human could run a four-minute mile until somebody did. And when Roger Bannister broke that four-minute mile, there was like, you know, 10 people that broke it like in the next month because the mental barrier was over. 
And so, as I said, you know, you look at these things from a behavioral economic standpoint, I've got to convince people that something is possible in that process. And so when you measure output per dollar of labor spent, whichever methods you come up with the numerator and the denominator, those are the clearest measures to keep your team focused as to what their true output is. And, and what that leads to many times is, you know, a refinement of how you track data and produce, you know, smaller focused data of weekly team information, weekly billings, biweekly billings, monthly billings, whatever, you know, compared to whatever you're paying in labor. And those things really, really help, you know, people, you know, focus. But the second piece that really matters is also then in terms of speeding up the cash of whatever that economic buildup is, is can I bring accounts receivable down? Can I bring inventory down if I hold inventory? Can I get some trade support from my vendors uh, in accounts payable? Can I bill customers in advance and have some deferred revenue or customer deposits to offset that? And so what we've really focused on in the second book is this idea of return on invested capital. So if I can lower the capital requirement to operate a business on a day-to-day basis and maintain or increase the, the net income piece, I've got, an, I've got an investment. And this is what I try to get my entrepreneurs to understand. The minimum return on investment we see for a U.S.-based business of any industry should be 50% or greater. So think about that. You've got a million dollars invested in the business. You should have a minimum of a $500,000 profit every year, minimum. And some years it could be even much higher. But, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you nurture and, and protect this investment that's a 50% year in and year out? And, oh, by the way, why wouldn't you take some of those profits and leave it in the business to grow it to the next level? and create compounded earnings at 50 to 100% return. I mean, and, and that's really been a passion of mine is to get in, to quantify things and get it into the head of the entrepreneur of just how valuable this investment is. And yeah, it's a pain. There's days that you just hate running a business and you've got a job with all the headaches of ownership. But, you know, but if you really look at what the return potential is, you can kind of get over that. And really start to realize that, hey, maybe I can afford to hire some of that talent to professionally run it better because it's going to create a better output for the cost that I have you know, built into it. How can people learn more about you and find you or hear your talk or how does that all work? Yeah, so a couple of things. So when, when we merged with, with Car Rigs and Ingram, I mean, we're still, we run the Huntsville office of that, that organization. So there, we got like 60 offices you know, around the U.S. But for the simple numbers, uh, the easiest place is just look, go to simplenumbers.me uh, is the website of the book. Uh, if you just Google Greg Crabtree or Simple Numbers, you're going to find a bunch of talks that I've given off the material on YouTube. And I've let a lot of people you know, post videos of where I've done presentations. And then the, um, you know, they can certainly reach out to me at greg.crabtree at cricpa.com. A direct email address, uh, but those contacts are also on the website as well, so that'd be the easiest way to get in touch with us. But you know, we our our process is we we kind of do a deep dive with a client that we, we believe is very affordable in terms of taking your data and retelling your story to you. And this is kind of fun. I mean, when we get a hold of a client's data, and your data doesn't have to be perfect. We I'd say one of our best skill sets is we can make sense out of bad data if we have enough of it. And and so if you get about three years of bad data. 
we can kind of filter out all the stuff in a one-off, you know, deal of, of helping people see it and say, listen, before you start cleaning things up, you need to have a picture of where you're trying to hit. And, and so when we fix those things and, and go through the planning session with them and give them some direction, I mean, it's, it's really encouraging to see how many people can change the trajectory of a business that, that is languished. And uh, we, we've got quite a few people that we refer to as our 15-year overnight successes and people, <laughs> people that have struggled for quite some time. And it's like, it's, and it's so rewarding to see they get it. And then it's like, all right, now I know this piece that I was missing and, you know, and they can take off and do it. And, and it's, it's, it's really, really a lot of fun to see and, and so rewarding to see them finally get the return that they've been looking for. Awesome. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today and thank you to our listeners and be well. Okay, thank you. Thanks for joining us today on AMI Sites with your host, AMI Kassar, the foremost SBA thought leader. Make sure you visit us at multifunding.com where you can meet our advisory team and learn more about how we help entrepreneurs fund their future.